6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 28 through 30. Verse 12. To whom he said, this is the rest by which ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Interesting, interesting inversion going on here. The same thing occurs in Matthew 13. If you recall, Jesus speaks to them in parables. We always learn that parables are wonderful teaching aids. That's interesting because that's the opposite of what Jesus' express intent was in Matthew 13. If you read Matthew 13, he spoke in parables so that they hearing would not hear and seeing they would not see. Because he said to his disciples when they were in private, to you it is given, to them it is not. So strangely enough, there's an, a parabolic aspect, if I may, with the parables. Same idea. And here again, you see, the point being that God's Word requires something else to be intelligible. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says they have to be spiritually discerned, right? Spiritually discerned. And that's exactly what happens with the hologram and the laser. The hologram is meaningless without the laser. And likewise here, the raw words will not be intelligible without the action of the Holy Spirit. And remember that. In fact, I apologize if I have mentioned this before, if I'm being repetitive, but I've come across this lately in a couple of groups. When you're studying the Scripture and you discover a passage that makes no sense to you at all, I want you to praise God and thank Him for the opportunity because you will have an opportunity to conduct an experiment, an empirical experiment in the supernatural. What I want you to do is get a little book, a logbook, a diary. Girls are used to doing this. They somehow seem to have an affinity to keep journals, they call them, or diaries. Guys generally don't do this for some reason. <laughs> There's probably too many professions where it's illegal. <laughs> if you're in the Navy, you can't do that, for example. But the point is to get a little journal, something that's private. The intention is that no one will ever see this. Because what I want you to do is when you come across a passage that you don't understand, write down the date... And here's the tricky part. Try to write down your confusion about the passage. Try to explain to yourself, and you'll see why in a minute, that you don't understand this passage. List the passage and explain why it just, to yourself why it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Once you've done that enough to document it for yourself, then I want you to pray. Take the passage before the throne of grace and ask God to show you, through the Holy Spirit, what that passage means. Now, I'm not suggesting that the next 20 seconds there's going to be a flash of light and, uh, you know, a visitor that will say, by the way, see, you overlooked this over here, see. No, no, I don't mean saying that. That may happen. I'm not going to rule it out. But that's not the way I believe it will happen. It might be later that day. It might be the next day on the radio. It might be some totally unrelated incident. 
Or it might be something you hear, you know, some preacher on the radio, or it might be something else you happen to encounter reading something else. It could be a conversation you'll overhear the following week. Something will happen to cause that passage to become so clear to you that you will not be able to remember how confusing it was. And then what I want you to do is put that date down and record how it became clear. So that a week later or a year later, when you're discouraged, or you go through a valley of doubt, or something occurs in your life to just sort of give you a setback, you can go back to your logbook and remind yourself how God miraculously dealt with you personally. The value in that will be a function of how thorough you are when you date it and describe something you don't understand. You follow what I'm saying? Try it. It'll blow you away. And what you'll experience in an empirical setting is the supernatural agency called the Holy Spirit interacting with your personal tutoring. Not Chuck Missler's tapes or some TV preacher's crazy ideas, but the Holy Spirit personally taking you through the Word of God. Another important thing, you know, we sometimes talk about the Holy Spirit very glibly and very perhaps casually. The Scripture says that you should not grieve the Holy Spirit. You know what that tells you about the Holy Spirit? He loves you. You can't grieve somebody that doesn't love you. Think about it. Anyway, moving on. Got off the subject, didn't I? Sorry about that. Verse 14. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, be scornful men that rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because ye have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Now understand, Isaiah is being sarcastic. The people he's accusing, and here he's shifting, incidentally, to the uh, leadership in Jerusalem. You see, Isaiah's been talking about the coming captivity of Ephraim, not because of Ephraim's interest, but to make it a, a lesson to Judah. You follow me? Now he's shifting his focus from Ephraim to specifically to those who are, uh, that rule in Jerusalem. You follow me? And he's editorializing their actions. Because if you ask them, they don't realize they're making a covenant with death. That's Isaiah putting into clarity the position they put themselves into. We have made a covenant with death, and, and with Sheol are we in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Interesting passage. Yes, indeed, there's a local application at the time, but most scholars who look at this are more intrigued with the likelihood that this has a second reference. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, speaking of the prince that shall come, this coming world leader who's going to usher in a false peace. And he somehow is going to enforce a covenant with Israel for seven years. And then in mid-career, he's going to betray Israel and usher in a time of trouble for Jacob, the likes of which they had never seen to that time. And boy, they've had a lot of trouble. The covenant in Daniel 9 end of chapter 9, may be the same covenant here, the covenant with death, and later on it's a covenant with hell, in effect. Verse 16, right in the middle of this, we're going to take up the covenant here again, but right in the middle of this, Isaiah 
puts another one of his nuggets. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Interesting passage. Sounds very familiar to us because it is quoted so often throughout the Scripture. You can find it in Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 32. It was earlier in Isaiah 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 2. But let's just pick a couple ourselves. We obviously won't track all of these things. In fact, what I'm going to suggest you do on your own, if you haven't done this, I'm going to encourage you sometime when the Spirit leads you, is to do a study of stone. Get a concordance. If you don't have an exhaustive concordance like Strong's or Young's, I encourage you to get one. Blow 10 bucks and add it to your library. An exhaustive concordance, because you can take the word stone and it will show you every place in the Scripture it appears. And just track it through. You'll discover something very interesting. You'll discover that the idiom of a stone is used surprisingly, consistently, of Jesus Christ. When you've done that once, then take the word rock. It's a different word. Take the word rock and track it through. And you'll discover that the rock at Meribah from which the water came is Jesus Christ. It alludes. It's an idiom, in effect, pointing to. I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me. There really was a rock. I, I'm not trying to confuse you. My point is, it speaks symbolically or idiomatically of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? From 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that. The rock that followed him through the wilderness was Jesus Christ. Strange idea. Dig it out for yourself. But just to give you a flavor of some of these things, turn to Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner. That's what John was saying in his opening chapter of his gospel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to the many as did receive him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Turn to 1 Peter 2. We could spend all evening chasing some of these. I'll just pick a couple to give you the flavor. First Peter chapter 2, starting about, say, verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Sounds like Isaiah, doesn't it? Unto you, therefore, who believe he is precious, but unto them who are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them who stumble his word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. A couple of examples. The most fruitful thing is to do it on your own, take a concordance, spend a little time, and just track these words. It's fascinating. First of all, you'll not only learn a spiritual truth, but it'll also gain you a respect for design. How every detail in the Scripture, every subtle phrase of these 40 authors in the 66 books is there by supernatural agency, by the intent, the deliberate craftsmanship of the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, one small thing, back in verse 16, the first word is therefore. And you can do a little study of that if you like. You'll know when Isaiah in chapter 7, when he gave the virgin birth announcement, says, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign and so forth. So if you're really sensitive, you really dig into it, you'll even discover the sentence structures and the connectives 
are often significant. But in any case, verse 17, moving on. Justice also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the uh, plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, when ye shall be trampled down by it. And by the way, I'll just highlight a prophetic possibility. You know, we so glib about the 70th week of Daniel. It's a seven-year period defined by that treaty. No one says the treaty's for seven years. You see, it's interrupted. You follow what I'm saying? I'm always fascinated by Ezekiel 38 from Russian invasion. We have the weapons are left over from that battle, right? Provide fuel for Israel for seven years which raises some questions. If they're conventional weapons, it's hard to visualize them providing all the energy needs of Israel for seven years. Okay, if they're nuclear weapons, you'd think they'd give them power more than seven years. They probably does. They only need it for seven years. So I'll let you think about that a little bit. Possibility. Just one of Chuck Missler's conjectures. Anyway, the covenant of death shall be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol shall not stand. The Lord himself will interrupt what's going on by his second coming. Not the rapture, the second coming. Okay, verse 19. From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over, and by day and by night it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. For the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than he can wrap himself in it. Doesn't sound very peaceful, does it? Verse 21. For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perazim. And shall be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Okay, a couple of comments here. Perazim shows up in Second Samuel chapter 5 when David and the Philistines, it is known there by David, names it Baal Perazim. In other words, it's an idol-worshipping place. As this other geographic allusion is the valley of Gibeon, and that shows up in Joshua chapter 10. Some also called the Battle of Beth Horon. And um, in both cases, we have God intervening in human history. The one in Joshua is particularly intriguing because Joshua, in many ways, appears to be a supernatural model of the book of Revelation. And uh, we have another Yehoshua dispossessing the land of its usurpers. But instead of just Canaan, as, as in Joshua, Jesus Christ whose name is Yehoshua, and will dispossess the planet Earth of the usurpers. In each case, they're going against seven nations. In each case, the nations are aligned under a leader, in the one case calling himself Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, the other one the coming world leader. It's interesting that he's defeated by signs in the sun and the moon, both in Joshua 10 in a microcosm sense and, of course, in Revelation in a cosmic sense. And again, in each case, the kings who are defeated head for caves to hide. Revelation, they hide in caves saying, rocks fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb. Boy, what a mixed metaphor that is, the wrath of a lamb. And yet, as we understand the Levitical idiom of the lamb, the lamb of God, our redeemer, we know that he's our kinsman redeemer, our goel, whose act of redemption restores Israel to the land, that is Naomi, to Bethlehem, in the, in the idiom of, of the book of Ruth. And he takes a Gentile bride. In Ruth, it's Ruth. And, of course, in uh, his redemption of the planet Earth is the church, right? If you're following my mixed analogy. But what most of us don't realize, the kinsman redeemer has two roles. Kinsman redeemer, on the one hand, the Goel is our kinsman redeemer, yes. But the kinsman redeemer is also the avenger of blood. So as you study those uh, 
Old Testament models, you'll discover, we'll get into this in Isaiah 61 more thoroughly. His strange work, God's strange work, his judgment of sin, his intolerance of unrighteousness. He may do a strange work and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Verse 22, now therefore be ye not scoffers, lest your bands be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction even determined upon the whole earth. And of course, we mentioned this in Isaiah 10, but also it alludes to Daniel chapter 9. Again, that which is determined shall be poured out. It's interesting that the wrath of God, these, these wild things that we read about in Joel 2 and Revelation 19 and on, are measured Determined, specific. And here again, she said, even determined upon the whole earth. It's prepackaged, it's predetermined, pre established. Verse 23 Give ear and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. Doth a plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? And my conjectural question is Is this the idiom here, the same ground that we read about in Matthew 13? Remember Matthew 13 and the seven kingdom parables? And the first several speak of the sower and the soils and the tares and the wheat. What's the field there? The world, right? What's the seed? The Word of God. And again, we have an interesting idiom being applied right here. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? See, before you can plant the seed, you break the ground, right? That's exactly what the parable in Matthew 13 deals with. The next few verses, it's going to presume upon an agricultural background, but I think we can follow it anyway. Verse 25, when he hath made plain the face of it, doth he not cast abroad the dill, that's a dill seed, uh, scatter the cumin, and cast in the wheat and rose, and the appointed barley and the spelt in their place. Spelt is a poor man's grain for bread. For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. For the dill is not thrashed with a thrashing instrument, neither is the cartwheel turned about upon the cumin. But the dill is beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread grain is ground because he will not ever be thrashing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor grind it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in his counsel and excellent in working. That whole analogy of the different seeds, as they're planted and thrashed and harvested, they each are dealt differently. That's all he's saying. And then we have to get into the agricultural aspects. The point is you don't use inappropriate tools. You, to each is the proper handling, in effect, is the gist of those different seeds, without getting into which are aromatic and which aren't and all of that business. Also, I might mention Leviticus 19 mentions you don't mix seeds. Kind of interesting. And so if you want to review that in your leisure, you can also just note Matthew 13 because the same kind of uh, vocabulary is used by Christ when he is instructing his disciples. Where there, of course, the sower is not a man and the seed is God's word and the world is the field and so forth. And uh, so I encourage you to review Matthew 13 if that's confusing to you. Moving right along, we have chapter 29. Woe to Ariel. Now, Ariel means the lion of God. But don't be confused because you might jump to the conclusion here it's referring to the Lion of the tribe of Judah. No, Ariel is a label, a title, an idiom for the city of Jerusalem. Even today, there's a very prominent quarterly about Jerusalem called Ariel. Ariel is a, another name for the city of Jerusalem. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. 
And I will encamp against thee round about and lay siege against thee with a mound, and I will raise forts against thee. This has echoes of Zechariah chapter 14. You can look that on your own. We'll keep moving to make some progress here. But the same idiom is in view. Verse 4. And thou shalt be brought down, and thou shalt speak out of the ground. Thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be like a medium or like a channel. Huh? As uh, Joanna Michelson always asks me, can you truly find a happy medium? Huh? Mm. Anyway, sorry about that. Yeah. Like a medium out of, the, out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper, or I might say chirp, out of the dust. Remember, we ran into that in chapter 8. That term's only used in Isaiah. Speaks of the mediums that chirp and mutter, remember? Okay. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be like chaff which passes away. Yea, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. Thou shalt be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, and with earthquake, and great noise, with storm and tempest, and the flame of devouring fire. Glib words, but terrifying in their impact. Verse 7, And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her stronghold and that distress her, shall be like the dream of a night vision. And it shall be as when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, and he waketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he waketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. So shall the multitude of the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. One of the strangest things to contemplate is that all the nations are going to come up against Jerusalem. Zechariah talks about it in chapter 12 and chapter 14. Psalm 2, the dialogue between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and that makes up Psalm 2, mentions this. One of the strange things about the whole Armageddon business, whether it's in the Old Testament prophecies or the New Testament prophecies, is the whole idea that the world, the Gentile nations, are going to knowingly take up arms against the God of the universe. I find that hard to imagine. And yet that's what the Word of God says. I mean, nations in all their arrogance, I find it amazing that they'll get that arrogant as to actually take up arms against God. <laughs> and yet, that's clear. That's what's going to happen. Verse 9, Stay yourselves in wonder, cry out and cry. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. And hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. And the vision of all has become unto you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him who is not learned, and saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. <laughs> kind of interesting. We read the Old Testament prophets like Daniel, it's sealed until the time of the end. And one of the interesting things about today is prophecies that have not been understood for 19 centuries or more are suddenly becoming very clear. Study Daniel 2 and 7 and 9. And they're common knowledge today among, among the biblically literate. I realize it's a small minority, but biblically literate. And yet you can go back a few decades and most ministers wouldn't even know what the 70-week prophecy Daniel was all about. And today it's pretty common. You may have different views, but you commonly commonly discussed. Well, that's the Old Testament. Now I get to the book of Revelation. What makes it distinctive is that it's not sealed. In fact, it's the only book of the Bible that has a command to read it. The Bible often says study the Bible, sure, generically, totally, collectively. Only one book has the audacity to say, read me, I'm special, and you get a special blessing. Book of Revelation. 
It's not sealed, is it? And yet, in Amos, the prophet tells us that there's going to be a famine. Not of bread, but of the Word of God. I never could visualize that until recent years. You know, as I grew up, uh, you know, some people knew about the Bible, some didn't. But even people who didn't believe the Bible at least knew something about it. They just had some awareness because it was just a cultural tradition, if nothing else. What's amazing to me today as I travel, in fact, probably my main burden in my ministry, is the biblical illiteracy, even within the body. Now, the good news is a real hunger. The good news is everywhere I go, people gather by the thousands with a hunger to get from the milk into the meat. And I think that's exciting. And yet, I also, as I go, am appalled at how many things I used to take for granted that people don't know. The good news is in well-taught fellowships, there's a hunger and there's an openness, and that makes it exciting. But you can also tell in our culture, looking more broadly, how it's all starting, how the world is closing itself off from biblical things. And it's not hard to imagine a time when people will want to know and can't. And I'm not speaking about the, the dearth in some of the third world countries or the, the, the conditions in the Soviet Union for the last 50 years that hopefully are starting to, you know, there's, there's some openness there. It's quite exciting. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, in the world at large, among civilized nations. It's not a question of disbelieving. It's a question of not having any interest or background or knowledge as to what, what it even says, let alone whether they buy it or not. It's interesting how the book will become once more a book that's sealed. If for another reason, the hinderer, that is, the Holy Spirit, will be taken out of the way. See, the church that maybe we're talking about here is the churches who do not need new pastors after the rapture. Verse 13, the wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Those that hath more will be given, and those that hath not, such as they have, will be taken away. Strange phrase that Jesus used, but sort of fixed here, doesn't it? Verse 15, Woe to those, unto those who seek deeply to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, Who seeth us? And who knoweth us? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.